0: Welcome to Nosotros, the podcast about all things San Antonio, its arts and culture, and its politics. My guest today is Erica Prosper, the First Lady of San Antonio and HEB Senior Director of Customer Insights. We'll talk more about that later. She's co-founder of the Latina Leadership Institute, which has created economic development white papers about women, with Raising Texas, the Saver Institute, and Venture Lab. She earned two bachelor's degrees from UT and a master's in communication from the University of Pennsylvania Annenberg School. She serves on the boards of the Girl Scouts of South Texas, Methodist Healthcare Ministries, and the Las Casas Foundation. She also volunteers on several advisory boards aimed at empowering Latinas and advocating for voting. Welcome, Erica.
1: Thanks for having me here. I'm enjoying our time.
0: Um, I guess I'll start with your early life. And and you were um, a migrant kid in South Texas, and you worked in the fields, and you probably went to a lot of schools during that time. Talk about that period and the impact it made on your life.
1: You know, I spent a lot of my teenage and youth years really being upset about that life, to your point, right? Because you get pulled out of school early, so you don't get any, you know, parties at the end of the school. You come to school late, so you don't have that time period to adjust or make new friends. And so I really resented it for a long time. Um, But as I've gotten older, I've really embraced that aspect and even the hardships that came with it, because I feel like, the more exposure I get to the world's problems, the more I realize that migrant farm workers actually have skill sets that are so needed now to navigate the world's problems. So resiliency and stamina and collaboration, all that you need as a migrant kid, right? And you learn it so young, but can't say that it was, you know, peaches and roses. Obviously I can say that as a grown-up, but yeah, we moved everywhere. We stayed in the most horrible places <laughs> Sometimes. Trailers that didn't have air conditioning or running water. Sometimes um, houses where four or five families would have to be living together. Um, thank goodness it was we were all related, <laughs> so we knew each other. But I also have these fleeting memories of good things. This is the first time I remember seeing a real park, a real manicured, fancy park. I still have that image in my brain, you know. Um, and I have images of these. Different schools, to your point, where I would only be there for a week or two weeks and then the school year would end. And so I'd never really got to know anybody, but they were different than the schools in the valley nicer, right? So it, I think, in a weird way, um, while it was really a hard and difficult um, life, and it still is, because let's not forget, mm-hmm. migrant farm workers Absolutely. still exist and they still provide our food. <laughs> Um, I think at the same time, I have some really good memories of bonding with my family um, during those hard times that I think most kids never get those experiences. So I'm grateful for it.
0: What kind of work did you do? I mean, oh. what were you actually doing?
1: All right. So if you're a kid <laughs> and right, I was in the fields at age five. You were stuck with the bucket. So because you can't hold the scissors, you can't really do anything with with any um sort of instrument that might kill you or damage you. At least my family didn't let me. So I would be the one carrying the bucket behind my tias where they would put the cebollas or the cilantros um, or the crates. And then as I got older, right, about age, let's say, eight or nine, that's when I got my own pair of of, uh, scissors. Oh, my God. And so I was a cebolla queen. I would pick those things up, knock the dirt in the bucket. And so um, I used to make a game of it, right? Like, how fast how dexterous it was now as a grown up carpal tunnel is real because oh, of that yes. but that was kind of the big job the 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 job i hated the most though was hoeing because you had short hoes so you would have to bend over
0: oh my right? god you you used the short yeah. hoe
1: well when you're a kid, it's easier because you're you're closer. shorter. That's you're right. Shorter, but because it older, was banned
0: in many states, horrible. it's a horrific instrument. Yeah,
1: for those farmers that still made you use them, they wanted the kids to use them because it was less damage. Right, the adults would be hurting. Um, as I got older, um, that's when I would switch over to the cebolla, which made it easier. And then picking, when I was probably maybe also in the between eight and twelve ish, that's when you would go and pick the the apples um, up in the northern states. And those were fun because you could pretend like you were going on a picnic and you were getting the apples for things. And you would just make all these stories up to kind of give away the reality that you had still had like a whole orchard full of of apples you had to pick.
0: It was in high school that your life changed Mm -hmm. a bit, correct? Um, Tell us about what happened um, when you were Finally, getting to that point in your education.
1: Well, I was around 15 and um, starting high school, and up until then, I had good grades. And up until then, a lot of people were always saying, "Oh, you're smart." But really, in high school, a counselor noticed that um, I was really a high achiever and that my test scores were high. So they approached my family about letting me do a Votech program over the summer instead of going into the fields. And my stepdad at the time, bless his soul. He was the one that convinced my mother to let me stay behind and not go into the fields and instead take this Votech job, which would eventually allow for me to then really explore what is out there outside of the fields. So that was a key change. And then, unfortunately, as I got a little older, when I turned um, 17, my, my stepfather and my mother got divorced. And so she kind of went through a period of her life where she just kind of had no restraints. She just went crazy. And I think about, as a grown-up, all the oppression that Latina women, she was a single mother of four at the time, just, just the stress. I mean, she just decided she was going to sow her oats, right? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that leads to behavior that is not the safest for children. And I was uh, removed from the home for some mistakes and some decisions she made. So at 17, I found myself pretty much like, I don't have a place to live. I don't have a place to stay, right? Um, And so I ended up being fostered by these teachers at my school. Um, And these two teachers would end up being really pivotal in my education at 17 because they knew about how to get to college. They knew about the paperwork. So when I became a senior, since I was living with them, they did a really fantastic thing for me in that they kind of took me under their wing and said, we're going to figure out how to get you to college, right? And so-
0: Did they adopt
1: you? Well, that comes later.
0: Okay, What <laughs> ended right. up
1: happening is they were crucial in getting me into it. And yes, six years later, when I was 23, um, they had become such a safe haven for me. During all my college, my graduate school life, it, they became the home base. And, and eventually um, we came to love each other as family. Um, And so at 23, they asked if they could adopt me. They didn't have a need. It didn't have to happen. But they didn't have any children of their own. Mm -hmm. And I had a great relationship with my birth family. And my birth family didn't even see it as anything different. As far as they were concerned, I was still very active in the family. But I just happened to live with them. So I said yes, and at that moment they became officially, you know, in state records, they're my parents. Because they and these are the Prospers. No, these are the Greys. Oh, okay. So my Prospers, my maiden name. Oh, it is. it is. Okay. No, these are Pat and Jonah Gray. They were um, the first teachers in Texas to start an RTF program at a high school level. Um, they found their way to the valley and have lived there ever since. Um, and they are the most wonderful parents. You know, anybody can ask for it. They're wise, they're funny, they're artistic. I mean, they're probably what I would hope any child has as a parent, really.
0: Oh, well, that's a beautiful story. I didn't know all the particulars. I knew that you were adopted at some point. But um, the other person that comes to mind when I see your Facebook timeline mm-hmm. is your grandmother, um, Abuela Abundia.
1: Yes, Maria Abundia Tafoya.
0: Oh, my goodness. So tell us about her. She's sort of a like a character in a movie. When I see her picture,
1: she's 99. She's about to turn 100. Oh, my in goodness. Month. In one month, this woman turns a century old. Um, my grandmother is probably the steadiest person in my life. I mean, you know, when everyone talks about like unconditional love, mm-hmm. you know, Like someone that doesn't want anything from you, just to love you and to see you be happy. That's her for me. Um, She didn't have an education. She grew up in Michoacan, uh, in a in a little granjita. Right, they had their little terrenitos. They would they would uh, cultivate. Um, Got married at like fourteen or fifteen. Ended up having eleven children. And when I was younger, and a, a young you know Latina chicana, I was always like, she's so resilient. She's so tough. And, you know, she she went through so much, you know, and and she's still standing. But now I'm a mother, I'm older, and I realize what really, really mattered to me and what she did was she gave me probably the steadiest emotional grounding. Because mm-hmm. she doesn't know what I do. She has no clue, never in my entire <laughs> life. She has no idea what I do for work, never did. And she doesn't care. As long as I would show up to the house And I would snuggle with her. She's mead with her. I, you know, now at 99, I just hold her hand, moisturize them. She doesn't care. She just loves me. Mm -hmm. Doesn't care if I was rich or poor, what I ended up doing with my life, who I married. She just loves me. That now is probably the most precious thing I can think of. Right. And I'm sure people have abuelas who, who they're recognizing that part of them. We, we. I mistook a lot of her resist- resilience and a lot of her traits as like the reasons I loved her. But it isn't until now that I realize, as I'm kind of getting ready to lose her, <laughs> really, mm-hmm. um, that it, it was just the idea of unconditional acceptance. Yes.
0: It's just pure love. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. Um, before we get to talk about Ron, that is Ron <laughs> Nirenberg, the mayor of San Antonio, San Antonio, I'd love for you to tell our audience about your Professional life, even though your grandmother probably didn't care, doesn't care what you do. Um, and I, the reason I I want to know about this because I know you deal with data and research, and get into the mind of the consumer. And I always feel that AGB, your employer, has read my mind. <laughs> they know what I want to buy before I get there and see it. So kind of creepy. (laughs) I feel the same way about Target. I feel like, what are they doing? So tell us all about what you do, what you train to do.
1: Well, um, the long and the short of it is it's my job to sit with customers. And it's really my team because they deserve the credit. Um, But it's our job to sit with customers just like right here and talk to them and understand But not just what you want to buy or what you don't have, but understand what is your life and what are the things that are pressing for you and what are the things that you feel like I'm worried about blank, right? Or I really don't like it when this happens because we really feel, um, and that's like I said, part of our team's job. We really feel as a company that um, we don't do enough, believe it or not, and so our well, job. that's
0: good because then you'll get better and you're already really good.
1: <laughs> well, and that philosophy has been interesting because I think a lot of people mistake that with like um, being dissatisfied and, you know, pushing people because it's not enough. It's not good enough. But it, but actually it comes from a different place. We at least we are here to understand that humans change. Humans change all the time. You mm-hmm. discover something new. You end up changing your life stage. Um, you know, you try a new flavor and suddenly you're hooked on it. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Part of our job is to understand that and tell the company, this is the direction that our customers are moving, or here are the hardships they have. What's our response to that, Mm -hmm. you know? Or here's what this community feels about with us coming into town. They're scared that their small businesses might be shut down. What are we going to do about that? So it's a really fulfilling job, I think. And our team, um, I did not train for this. Let me make it clear.
0: Oh, you didn't? No, I I
1: got a, a, my undergrad was in marketing and advertising um uh i did a lot of latino i actually thought i was gonna end up doing some sort of like academic hispanic thing right because mm-hmm. i really studied a lot about the hispanic market i ended up doing marketing for about a decade with lionel sosa that's
0: right with the famous lionel sosa
1: he was my first mentor and then um, i started my own business because i wanted to have a child and advertising is not forgiving when it comes to, you know, at the time, at least in the 90s, late 90s, it wasn't that forgiving for families. And then in in that two-year time when I had my business, um, I ended up getting hired by HP to design what would customer people research look like. And when I helped them kind of think through it, then they turned around and said, well, would you like to actually run it and start it? And so 15 years later,
0: Wow! Congratulations. Um, At my HEB is very interesting. Heart of the West Side on Commerce Street, one of the older mm-hmm. stores, and I noticed about oh maybe three months ago, four months ago, we got sushi. <laughs> and man, Mexicans love sushi. So good, good going on that one.
1: I'm from the Valley. We have probably more Chinese restaurants than Mexico. Oh,
0: I know exactly. Um, Okay, now let's talk about your husband. San Antonians by now know a little bit of your love story. But give us a a couple of highlights.
1: And um,
0: yeah, give us a couple of highlights. (laughs) Um, Before I ask more about your recent uh, trip to the White House.
1: 1999, I get asked to tour this Texan through the graduate program up in Philadelphia and the University of Pennsylvania because we really wanted him to pick us. Mm -hmm. I show him around. I, said, I worked night. at the
0: Edinburgh Center for four years. That's
1: amazing. So sure enough, he, you know, toured him around, said goodbye. Never thought of him again. Apparently he did. And uh, a year later. <laughs> That's awesome. He did join the program and then relentlessly asked me out. And I resisted for about four months before I finally said yes.
0: Why? Why?
1: Uh, I don't know if anyone has seen pictures of Ron when he was young. <laughs> but he would sport. A very large, curly-haired mop top.
0: Okay, yeah. Um, I've seen a couple pictures. Yes.
1: um, (laughs) And he used to really love to dress like the 70s. I'm talking polyester shirts and bell bottoms.
0: Oh, wow. So there was
1: just something that wasn't that attractive to me (laughs) about him. I mean... I, I, I'm not gonna lie I was just kind of like not my thing I mean he was like he was a handsome <laughs> cute boy but just not my thing
0: so it took how many months then it
1: took about four months finally after um after about November I said yes and uh and then after that that was it I went out on one date with that son of a gun <laughs> and uh that was
0: it that was it and you have a son how old is um your son now Jonah
1: is 14 years old wow And he's the spitting image of his father, but he got my hair, so that'll save him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Your invitation to the White House recently was a moment um, in which at least some San Antonians wondered, why are the Narenbergs being invited to the White House? So if you're me and you're chismosa and you're reading between lines, I wonder if Ron is being vetted for something in the Biden administration.
1: No, he's not. Um, but I have a, it's a good explanation. I mean, the truth is that remember that Ron has been in public service for 10 years, councilman for four years, mayor for six. And he was the biggest proponent for the sister city relationships. So, you know, he was the chair of Sister Cities International. For three years, he served in their executive position. He's been the chair of the Conference of Mayors. He's been, uh, he's involved actively. And so over that course of 10 years, he's built many relationships. And he was the one that really set up the relationship with Gwangju, South Korea. So when the president of South Korea was coming, they looked at which cities had relationships with it. And San Antonio um, obviously had a deep relationship. But in addition to that, Ron is the first Asian mayor of one of the largest um, cities. Um, And so the combination really made him, I think, uh, an attractive person to invite to that. Um,
0: And And so- You you all looked wonderful. Thank you. And I want to give you an opportunity to talk uh, about, um, you know, and I know this is stereotypical, so (laughs) forgive me, but everything you wore was so significant and you talked about that um, a little bit. So tell us how you selected the- the, the outfit and everything and what it represents?
1: Well, I think any time that we've been asked to do anything that I feel is going to get national attention, I really try to go out of my way to represent small businesses um, and my culture, right? Because you and I both know that it's not every day that Latinos get into these spaces or represent or the invitations. So I'm very conscientious of that. Every time, like when the king and queen of Spain came, I was very specific about what I wore, and um, and when we went to DC, it was the same thing. So I chose um, my go to dress place is Niche. It's right? a fabulous place. Their warehouse sales are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I went to them and I, I said, "Do you have a shape already that you feel um, you could use?" Because I want to hide my bansa. but I also want. <laughs> and to Nij re- is
0: run by um, two Latinas, correct?
1: Turkish, actually. Turkish. Yes. Okay. This mother and daughter. The story is great. Um, another immigrant came from Turkey with, you know, she had $60 and she had a style for fashion. And out of her garage, she made about six dresses with those $60, sold them, then kept making. And now her daughter, Isa, is the sort of operations person. So. They're still um, an amazing duo, but they have been basically by my side the entire time I've been, you know, um, first lady in terms of helping me choose things that I feel confident in, because that's really the key. That's the significance for me is not only am I representing Latinas in these spaces, but I don't want to be uncomfortable and I don't want fidgeting and I I want to feel confident. So I went to them and I'm like, y'all always hide my panza. And you have beautiful shapes, and it's modern too, mm-hmm. but it's also classic. Yeah. So I asked them, "What do you have that you can that you can alter for me?" And they did an amazing job. They um, they took a pattern they already had. I didn't want to have them, you know, go out of their way, and they they created a dress from that pattern, and then they embellished it a little by giving me a little like tail at the end, you know, a little train. Um, the reboso. Um, is from a, a textileria in Oaxaca. And I met the brothers who run that when I was in Oaxaca a few years ago. And what they do is they give jobs to young people and they train them in textileria, they train them in weaving to try and get them off the streets, to give them a chance to feed their families. And so the Rebozo, you know this, is so mm-hmm. significant. I have pictures of my and Keremianjo Rebozo. It means so many things to our community and to our women specifically. So I felt it was important.
0: Books have me. been written about it. Carmen Tafoya wrote a book about the Rebozo. Right.
1: Um, and so to me, it was important that the strength of the Latino women go in there, right? So small business was covered, the strength of the Latino. And then the clutch really was Piñeda Cobalín, but specifically the monarch butterfly. Um, I've had that clutch forever. It was like my first big splurge, right? (laughs) Um, But my grandmother being from Michoacán uh, is a really important thing for me. And I try to always have a butterfly on me when I go places to have her kind of take her with me. And that's what that represented. So it was a very simple uh, dress. And then I put on a trenza. All my my hair was just a big trenza around because, um, again, I knew there was not going to be one person in that room with a trenza. (laughs) And, and it, it represents so much for us. It means so much for us as a, as a Latino community.
0: Um, okay, so the real question San Antonians have, especially Latina San Antonians, mm-hmm. is, um, is about you and why you aren't the mayor of San Antonio. Uh, and that's a really serious question. Um, I know you've been with HEB for 15 years, but um, what do you want to do when you grow up? Ah,
1: well... I want to spend the next four drinking in as much as I can of my son, right? I mean, I got four summers, four Christmases, four spring breaks left. That's it. Not even four spring breaks, three. Um, so I have no um, other plans for the next, you know, four and a half years or three and a half years than to concentrate on that. And that means for me that what I, the situation I'm in currently for my job is just fine, Um I don't see myself leaving H-E-B, honestly. They do a fantastic job of keeping their executives. Um, we have a lot of freedom. We have a lot of autonomy. Um, and so I can't foresee working at a place that has not given me that balance of being able to you know, find talent and basically grow them at the same time, balance out what I want to do and accomplish in the community. They've never ever, ever had any issues with any of the things I've been involved with, any of the things that I want to give my time with. So there's a preciousness to that, right? And I've seen, I've seen, I've been on the other side of watching a political career and seeing the limits of that. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, I think as as a Latina, especially one that's really kind of starting to continue to expand her network, meeting more and more women outside of San Antonio that also represent their cities. Um, there's something really precious about staying with a company that allows for you to have that while still kind of growing your career and fulfilling your your responsibilities to other people. So when I grow up, I'm hoping that not only am I still at H-E-B, honestly, um, but I'm hoping that I'm also going to be able to continue to have the freedom to be involved in Doing all the nonprofit or the community work as well, and I, I don't think that I have the political patience <laughs> that is needed for that job. I think um, I think I would probably be the person, unfortunately, that would just say, "Okay, is anyone not saying what's in the room?" Let's go ahead <laughs> because I, I, by nature, I'm a problem solver. Yeah. So I want to get to the problem solving. Um, And so I don't think that that necessarily is how a lot of politics works. I think there's a lot of discussion and a lot of meetings and you have to navigate things so carefully.
0: And there's so much negotiation that goes on before anybody speaks about the issue and and the problem and solving it.
1: And I think I've worked too hard um, as a Latina, as an executive to tiptoe anymore. Right. And I don't I don't want that to have to be taken two or three steps back. Yeah. Um, You know,
0: understood. Understood. Okay, one last question before you go, because we're running out of time is um, tell us your critique of um, of the new show that's based in San Antonio, at least fictionally. Um, um, called Primo, and it's written by Shay Serrano. Tell us what you think about it.
1: It took me two days, but I streamed it all. I love it. Um, it was unexpected, Elaine, because I thought it was going to have a tried-and-true approach to, you know, a kid growing up. Um,
0: Situation comedy, you know.
1: But the idea that it's taken masculinity and it's given it a tenderness... The idea that
0: and vulnerability,
1: vulnerability and tenderness to the masculine element, the uncles, you mm-hmm. know, and 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 the fact that they are so respectful of the maternal of the mother,
0: definitely, right? and they're a little afraid of her too,
1: exactly <laughs> as exactly. it should be, as it should <laughs> like, be. Like oh, all Latinos are of Latinas, but I I think it surprised me because I wasn't expecting to see such a such a tender perspective of a traditionally macho role, right? And each of them has their own identity. And together, it's almost like they're all parts and together they create. Almost kind of like the movie in and out where all the emotions mm-hmm. separate mm-hmm. are different, but you put them very, together. Very,
0: good analogy yeah, there. Uh-huh. You put them all
1: together and they create the whole human. Yeah. And so there's something so beautiful about it. And, the, and I related, I mean, I had, a, I had an Uncle Roly. He was Everybody always does. in jail. He was always in jail. I loved him so much. <laughs> but he was also the most easygoing yeah, of all of
0: Yeah, of course, of um, course. Was I he high? So because that's also <laughs> the thing.
1: Well, my, my Tio Chago liked to drink. That was his problem. But but he was, um, I was there and never judgmental. And he was probably always the one that was like, well, what do you want, mija? You mm-hmm. know? So I, I recognized Influences.
0: Yeah. The I, uncles are definitely um, the spotlight, the the characters to note in that show.
1: They're And they're just a beautiful story. And I think it's universal. I think if you're a young man in the United States and you watch a show, you can relate to your own uncles. Maybe not, you don't have five of them, but you can relate to your own uncles or people, men in your life. If you're a mother trying to raise a son, you can relate about the men that are involved in your son's life. Um, if you're a, a just a woman and you're wishing you had those male figures, it gives you an idea of what to expect and, and what respect you should be having. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a universal story. I agree. I love it. 97 fresh Rotten I Tomatoes know, and 100 percent critics.
0: I know it was. It's just amazing. So, yeah, we have that in common. And I think more San Antonians are going to start streaming Real soon.
1: Well, don't forget that uh, Eva Longoria's *Flaming Hot* is coming out in July, and then um, last year there was *An Answer to My Prayers*, which was filmed here in San Antonio. It's going to come out, I think, in the coming year. Um, it was filmed and produced here in San Antonio, and starring um, uh, Luis Fonsi. Luis Fonsi. And it's a romantic comedy. Set
0: in San Antonio, filmed in San Antonio, and written by someone who really, um, Nancy De Los Santos, who really has a great um, uh, a grasp of, of San Antonio and how and how it is. So thank you so much for being with us. Longo. We get to talk about a lot of things when you're here. Don't be a stranger. Oh,
1: no. Let me know. I, okay. I don't mind. I I do watch a lot of TV. <laughs> I do watch a lot of pop culture, so... I have my own thoughts on so many things.
0: I Thank you so much. If
1: I, if you don't mind, there's one last thing I. Okay, to sure. Say. So, because I don't know when we'll have a chance to to talk about about this, but um, the one thing I do want to say to your your listeners um, is that I think San Antonio, um, we have to remember um, how special we are as a city. Um, it's that reason that I think Shay's story is resonating. It's the perspective of someone who grew up in San Antonio, right? And so our fingerprints are all over his story. But I also think when people think about dynasties, they don't just think of the Spurs because they're awesome. They think of the Spurs because they represent the spirit of the city, this humility working together. And I just wish San Antonio's would remember this. And like, I realize we have a lot of problems, but I really want San Antonio's to say, like, look at who we are and we are so freaking special.
0: And you can't buy it, and you cannot legislate it, and you cannot market it into existence. Mm -hmm. It's 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 palpable when you come here.
1: Yeah. Now now that's been the first lady for me. That's been the biggest privilege. To be fair, is that I now feel like I want to reflect all that uniqueness and amazingness back to back to our city. But anyway, that's a lot.
0: Oh, that's great. Thank you so so much for being here.